Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look through one of the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly the order that they were published in. So thank you so much for listening. In this episode, I'll be looking at uh, one of the stories by Philip Dick written in 1955 called The Hoodmaker. Now, The Hoodmaker is notable because it was one of the epis- one of the stories adapted into the into a a film version in the television series uh, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Now I talked about the story and the accompanying episode in an episode or I was part of a group discussing it in in an episode of sci-fi audio podcast so I urge you to go there and and listen to, to that episode where you can hear some opinions from other people. So if you've already heard that that episode, I'll be covering similar ground here, but uh, maybe going into a little bit more detail, maybe saying some things I didn't have a chance to say um, during that, that during that podcast. So The Hoodmaker, it's a story about post-humanism. It's a story about the, the precogs. And it's a story like several others that he wrote around this period of time that, that looked at the post-human as a bit of a threat. As I said in a previous episode, specifically Captive Market, I, I do think Dick is making a slight change in his perspective of the post-humans around this time of his writing, specifically in Captive Market, where we see the, the, the precog, the person with this supernatural, amazing ability to to see the future and to choose alternate futures. And what does she use it for? Well, she uses it just to make a buck. She uses it to to create a, a captive market, essentially, that is forced and bound to her to, to buy her products. So the mutant becomes very banal in some of Dick's later writings. But in this earlier period, in stories like World of Talent, Simon, Hill, My Daughter, My Child, the Hoodmaker, and even especially in The Golden Man, you have this idea that the post-human is a fundamental existential threat to, to humanity. Now, this is, <coughs> excuse me, in The Hoodmaker, we have an interesting take on this whole question because of, in this story, the, the mutants, the precogs, aren't even really full-blown mutants or post-humans. They're, they're just short-term aberrations. But, but I'll explain that in a minute. Oh, and, and just about the, the TV show, I'm not going to say much about it. It's quite different in its themes and its plot, even though I, I sort of like that episode. I, I don't have that many outright complaints about it, but it's not really a, a very clear adaptation of what Dick was trying to say in this story. Although there are themes in that story that I think Dick would have been sympathetic to, but it's, it's not really an adaptation of, the, of this story. Anyways, The Hoodmaker was published in Imagination in June of 1955 and you can find it in the second volume of the collected stories of Philip Dick we can remember it for you hosts wholesale and other other stories I mentioned this because 
you know that gives you a sense of where he when he wrote it because uh, those are arranged based on those short the collected stories are arranged based on when he submitted these articles to or these stories to his uh, agent and that might you know if you're looking kind of to follow up themes it can be a little bit more useful sometimes to look at the collected stories in order rather than just the publication dates because he, he published things when he could and when agents could sell them which wasn't always even in the same year anyway so into the story of the hood maker so at the start of the story a crowd attacks an old man and it's because someone pointed out he's wearing a hood and you have this mob action um, and I'm sorry, I almost have to jump in and talk about the television episode here because in the opening scene of the television episode, you have a kind of a mob that's protesting hood or protesting uh, the law that's prohibiting the use of hoods. Here, it's actually the mob is attacking people for wearing the hood. Uh, they shout out things like, nobody's got a right to hide, right? So... The idea that the hood can protect certain people offends those who aren't protected or don't think people have a right to protection from from surveillance, government surveillance. And that's what it comes down to. Here we have a population of precogs and psychics. Well, these are actually psychics, telepaths, who can uh, see into people's minds and expose all their deep-seated desires and thoughts and plots and plans. It's basically the ultimate form of government surveillance. And you have a large population of people who are hostile to the idea of protecting oneself against against these uh, forms of surveillance. Oh, finally, the mob seizes the hood and the police come and help him on his way. So we meet uh, a man named Clearance Director Ross, and he's worried about the growing number of people found wearing hoods. That it seems to be a growing underground movement of people choosing to wear these hoods to protect themselves from this this surveillance we they find out that the hoods are being sent directly to people's houses some people when they get these turn it into the government like good citizens but others begin wearing them in hopes of shielding their thoughts from psychic surveillance and the hoods are are more than just blocking telepaths they actually shock and, and kind of traumatize the telepaths a little bit when they pass it so it, it's actually visibly uncomfortable for them to be in the presence of one of these hoods it's, it's almost like a feedback experience so these telepaths these teeps were introduced by the state to replace loyalty oaths loyalty oaths of course being difficult to confirm right and 1950s were a time where you might have come across loyalty oaths or or certain kind of oaths you had to give for jobs or government jobs in particular you might have to kind of pledge allegiance to the united states this was a way to kind of root out communists but of course, anyone who was a real communist agent would easily take the loyalty oath. It's not clear how effective they were at rooting out dissidents. And certainly that's the problem here. So they, you go to teeps instead. Teeps can just read people's minds. There's no way of verifying one's loyalty. So the system was inaccurate and haphazard before the teeps came. What happened was a radiation-induced mutation created the teeps who then, then took over the, their main role in the society then became rooting out disloyalty. A young telepath named Ernest Aboud explains that he used the mob to seize the hood from this man named Dr. Franklin. And he was actually director of Federal Resource Commission. So this Dr. Franklin is actually in the government. But they scan him the moment he sc he scanned the moment the hood was removed. But the scan didn't reveal any new information about where the hoods were being made or manufactured. 
And he adds that Franklin had ideologically disloyal tendencies and should be picked up and, I guess, purged from, from government. So that's what's kind of going on in the police station. We see a very close relationship between the top teeps and the, and the police. So then we move to this man, Franklin. Now, Franklin, as we see, is already a government agent, but he seems to have disloyalty and he wants to wear a hood. So he's... You know, some he's he's the reason why they have these teeps, right? To to root out these people who would have failed the loyalty test. He ponders and he thinks about why he was attacked by this mob. He says he was not disloyal, but he did receive this strange hood in the mail. Now, this is an interesting point because the telepath insists that he did have disloyal thoughts. Um, but Franklin himself doesn't realize this, or so, or is not aware of it, or in his own monologue and his own. Th- thinking about himself he doesn't see himself as disloyal he was wearing this hood not to hide disloyal thoughts at least that's what he tells himself and that's what we're told as readers and they mentioned this anti-immunity bill this anti-immunity bill was the bill that was passed which basically made it illegal to make oneself immune from telepathic scans so that's the meaning of anti-immunity so it's illegal then to wear a hood because it's not just that the mobs pissed off at you. It's actually actually illegal under this law called the anti-immunity bill. And this is probably justified in terms of fairness, right? Everyone should be an open book, right? Going out, he finds that he's being followed by agents from the, basically the police, the clearance agents. A girl in a car drives by, picks up Franklin and helps him escape, giving him a hood to wear. She tells Franklin that he is being framed by the teeps. So this helps explain why he's being labeled as disloyal when he doesn't think himself as disloyal. It's just a frame job. So Franklin then quickly meets the hoodmaker, uh, James Cutter. James Cutter uh, is in a big warehouse where these hoods are being made. And most of the people in the development and manufacturing of these hoods are, are refugees from political frame jobs like the one Franklin is being uh, us, uh, is undergoing. There were they're being framed as part of an ongoing effort by the Teeps to remove the high-ranking officials from government. They've been using their hoods to protect these high-ranking members of the government from the Teeps' strategy. So, in fact, the hood-making effort is not so much a mass resistance to telepathic surveillance. It's almost an anti-telepath conspiracy within the government itself. The anti-immunity bill will assure Teep's ultimate victory, but this is the resistance to it. Carter plans to have Franklin meet Waldo, who is the chief sponsor of the bill, and maybe talk him into into withdrawing his support from this anti-immunity bill. On the way to see Waldo, Carter explains to Franklin that the Teeps are just like any other radical group in that they think they have the best path forward to humanity. And he he compares them actively to the Jacobins, the Bolsheviks, and and other minority radical groups who eventually seize government. They gain access to the senator, but Abood comes out, the telepath, like I met before, shoots Franklin with a slim gun. A slim gun is is one of these Philip K. Dick inventions, I believe. I, I think it's a gun that just kind of vaporizes or turns you into sludge or something. So um, Abu then reveals to Cutter 
So Franklin's out of the picture, right? So Abood reveals to Cutter that Waldo himself was a teep and indeed understood the role of the bill in the teep effort to seize government. And, and he kind of gives his evil plan here, or the evil plan of the teeps fully out in the open. They scanned Franklin before he got into the car, just long enough to see the girl's face. This led them to the warehouse, which they were able to shut down. They put all the political refugees into custody and basically were able to shut down the whole hood-making business. Cutter lets Abood scan him, and then Abood realizes what he has already figured out. And that is, or what Cutter's already figured out, and that is that the teeps were a result of genetic mutation and therefore sterile. They're, they can't pass on their ability to children. And they've been trying, but they haven't been able to actually give birth to any actual telepaths. And they, they kind of worried about this, but Cutter knows for sure that this ability is going to die within a generation. So they can never form a sustainable kind of dual power that can oppose the state. They won't be they will not be able to recreate a world with them on top, at least not permanently. And even if they do seize power, it'll only be for, you know, a generation. Now, the problem is Abdu doesn't want this information to get out and, te and the telepaths kind of exist in this this network, almost like a, like the Internet, where they're constantly talking to each other. So he tries to kill himself before other teeps pick up this knowledge, which is now in his head. But it's too late. The other teeps spread the knowledge. Cutter opens up his mind in discovery to all, having nothing to hide. And the implication is that this movement of telepaths is going to fall apart or many telepaths will just kill themselves out of despair or whatever. Um, and and that's the story. So it ends with kind of a, I guess, happy ending. The, the Hoodmaker survives and exposes the evil plan of, of the telepaths. So the Hoodmaker is a fairly familiar story about the question of surveillance states. The Hood is a technological means of evading the ultimate in invasive security systems. Now, we have people who try to develop these technologies now, right? Like you, you can actually buy these masks or special glasses and things that are supposed to protect your face from facial recognition software, right? And of course, on the Internet, there's all kinds of software that people download to cover their tracks, to hide what they're doing. Uh, both from corporations and from, from government. And surveillance is, at the same time, increasing its ability to keep track of all of us. Now, in this case, thanks to the telepaths, governments don't really need to worry if there are disloyal people in the government anymore because, you know, the teeps will root out anyone who's not loyal. And the accused don't need to, you know, bother proving their innocence anymore because their, their innocence or guilt can just be exposed through a telepath. So a lot of the stuff we take for granted in a civil society like courts, the rule of law, it's undone by a surveillance system that's effective enough, effective enough right? Like take, for instance, the, you know, due process in, in criminal justice. If, you know, that's presumed there's, that's based on a whole presumption of, of ignorance by the state, right? A crime has been committed, but we don't know who did it, right? Uh, so we need to have a trial. We need to investigate. We need to convince 12 people that this crime took place, and that's the guy who did it. That all becomes moot in effective enough of a surveillance state, right? Especially if it can go into people's minds where their guilt or innocence is right there for everyone to read. And that's kind of the situation we have here in the Hoodmaker, but it's only a short term in this case because these this particular brand of mutation is going to die out. Now, complicating this 
is the fact that the telepaths are misusing their power in an effort to seize the government. They're framing many high-ranking people in an attempt to clear up the government of non-telepaths. They claim that those who have nothing to fear should not fear surveillance. That's a common enough in our world, but it's utterly exposed here because all it they, what Dick shows here is it only takes a small number of malevolent people on the other side of the camera to really have a lot of power. One of the major guards of the security system proves to be the people themselves. And that's why that opening scene is so important where the mob actually works on behalf of the surveillance state. Due to their own desire for safety and security, they rise up against anyone who they see wearing a hood in public, using the logic of the government against them and eventually against themselves and their own freedom. In their logic, only a criminal or a traitor would fear being scanned. It's also a very small minority of people, those who know the truth of the conspiracy, who actually oppose the anti-immunity bill. These are usually people in government. So the opposition to this government, the seizure of government power by the telepaths is not the masses. It's actually a faction within the government that actually knows the true purpose of the anti-immunity bill. Dick shows here how when confronted with a system of total surveillance, we often second guess our own loyalties before we second guess the state itself. When a suspicion is made, we truly wonder if there's something about the accusation, especially when you're dealing with things like loyalty. And, you know, this is, I think this is something that, that Orwell sort of gets at in 1984 as well, that our minds are kind of fungible. And at some level, we want to be loyal. And, you know, no, no one's like, or very, I guess some people are, but most people aren't actively disloyal in their thoughts. But, you know, if given an accusation, you know, you're not a true patriot or you're not a good enough an American, they might think, well, you know, of course I am, but what did I say or what's wrong with me? Do I not understand something? So you kind of second guess. And that's what happens here with Franklin. Franklin's attacked by the mob and he is being framed, but he, he did think long and hard about his crime. He meditates on it. He says, quote, had he, or this is Dick, had he done something wrong, was there anything he had done he was forgetting? He had to put the hood, he had put on the hood, but maybe that was it, end quote. Now, this is how the panopticon is supposed to work. So the panopticon was an idea originally, I think, invented by Jeremy Bentham, and then F Michel Foucault popularized it in Discipline and Punish, that very famous uh, book on the prison. And basically, the idea of the panopticon is, is, is the, the importance of kind of self-confessional and self-disciplining to make the system work, right? It's not the brute force of the lash or the whip or the gallows. It's this process of self-confessional, this belief that you're always being watched and therefore you're always going to be second-guessing your own actions and through that self-disciplining yourself into being a proper good citizen. So this is not the first or the last time that Dick explores his, his theme about psionic mutants who will attempt to take over after coming to believe that they are a master race with an obligation over all. Dick sees this as an essential attitude of the ruling class or the technocrats or the bureaucrats or, or the party members. And this is how they're compared to, quote, the teeps are no different from the Jacobins, the Roundheads, the Nazis, the Bolsheviks. There's always some group that wants to lead mankind for its own good, of course. Most teeps believe they're the natural leaders of mankind. Non-telepathic humans are an inferior species. Teeps are the next step up, homo superior, and because they're superior, it's natural they should lead. Make all the decisions for us. 
So this is how a ruling class often sees itself, even when it's not genetically superior or post-human or, or a mutant. You know, obviously I'm in power because of my natural superiority, right? My natural brilliance. So Dick shows us that giving too much power to this class of people is actually a pretty horrible idea. Or giving too much power to any group of people is a horrible idea when they think back on it and they justify their power through their own views on their own superiority. Whatever use their talents have, they're odious leaders in practice. And in this story, Dick gives and explores their ability, or he gives their ability a termination date by making the mutants sterile. And I think that's kind of a, a, a new addition. It's something he didn't do before with the mutants. They've always been pure post-humans who would eventually reproduce and have their own kids and, and become a new ruling class. Uh, here, they have an expiration date. So... You know, most systems of power don't really have this. And most systems of power are, in fact, self-replicating. Now, is he saying, though, that the Bolsheviks, the Nazis, and these other groups also had an expiration date and a termination date? There might be something to that. Many of the groups he mentioned, like the Jacobins and the Nazis and the Roundheads, that's from the English Revolution, these were sort of one-off, one generation of leaders, right? They didn't really carry themselves on. There was a reaction against them or they were overthrown. The Bolsheviks, they were able to sustain themselves through a couple generations at least for, you know, the Soviet Union was in power for, for what, 70 years. So I don't know, two, three generations of leadership in that case. But most of these examples he gives, they, they do kind of just last for a short period of time. They, they're convinced that their system will last forever, but in fact, they're quite wrong about that. So many, there's optimism here in that many systems of tyranny maybe do have an expiration date. Um, but our broader systems of power in our societies don't, and they, they do tend to, to sustain themselves quite effectively. So this, um, this story, it's, it's not bad. It's, it's, it's nice. It, it, I like what he contributes here, by, especially what he does with the mutants here, and how he turns the surveillance state critique on its head. Because this, this criticism of the surveillance state in this story is coming from the people within the government and government exiles and other people who were close to the rise of the TEEP. And it's more of a faction between different sectors of the government than a mass movement. You know, of course, the TV series, when they do this, they make it mass resistance against surveillance because that's essentially how you know people think about surveillance these days i think is like it's the way you know in the, the edward snowden days it's government repressing the people broadly defined right but i i do think in practice most of us are quite accepting of of surveillance right they may hear a specific case like i don't like that but you know they go to work and their internet use is, is observed and watched even how many keystrokes they punch in an hour could be observed there's closed captioning television right in your buildings and you feel oh i'm so happy that's there because i feel safe so we actually do accept a lot of these things and I, I think dick is being quite honest with us in the story about just to what degree are we a little bit too accepting of the power of of the state so um that does it for for the hood maker so please leave any comments you have about this story below or if you saw the tv series the tv episode what did you think of that um you know, how do you think it compares to the original story? Um, so that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Um, you can, oh, you can also write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll, I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. So as always, thank you for listening. 
to my thoughts on this story, and I'll be back shortly with with yet another story by Philip K. Dick. My tired thoughts once more. That leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving dies.